Tennessee Titan quarterback Steve McNair was found shot to death. Found shot to death inside the condo. So many questions, and uh, the police department doing all the investigation that they can. Steve's popularity yielded him a lot of attention from different women. She was a ball of fire. Let's keep in mind this was a 20 year old female. We just always heard her talk about her boyfriend, Steve, her boyfriend, Steve. Her Michelle boyfriend, Steve. was aware of Steve's indiscretion. When a female is mad at you, you know it. We've learned much more about how Steve McNair and another woman in an apartment died. Over the last five to seven days of Kazemi's life, our investigation is learning that she had become very distraught and that she was going to end it all. And she's just, my life is just shit. And... She just ended. I don't have any trust in the medical examiner, in the uh, detectives, and I'm not ruling out anybody in terms of being a participant in the conspiracy to murder Steve. This is Tim Rowan. Welcome to Fall of a Titan. Today's date is July the 5th of 2009. Time by my watch is 1541 hours. I'm here at um, 8046 Logan Drive in Laverne, Tennessee about to interview Adrian Gilliam, and this is going to be concerning the investigation of the, uh, Steve McNair's death. One day after the Nashville police found the bodies of Steve McNair and Jenny Kazemi, investigators traced the murder weapon, a Bryco Jennings 9mm handgun, back to a car salesman named Adrian Gilliam. The police interviewed him in his home in suburban Nashville. In that interview, Gilliam told the police that he'd sold the gun a few days prior. Who did you sell it to? I sold it to some young lady. What was her name? I don't even know her name, sir. He didn't even know her name, he said. This woman had found his business card on a car windshield. She'd reached out and asked if he could help her sell her used Kia. And then Gilliam said Jenny asked him casually, do you happen to have a gun I could buy too? He said that he made the sale for $100. He said they made the exchange in the parking lot of a Dave & Buster's at the Opry Mills Mall in Nashville. But he didn't seem to remember which day this gun sale took place. Uh, I can't, it was a couple of days ago. It could have been three or four days, two or three days ago. Can you can you try to think to the best of your ability what day that was? It might have been the day before yesterday, I think. It would have been not the day before yesterday, the day before that. Seems kind of odd that he wouldn't remember which day he'd sold the gun, right? Especially if it had only been two or three days prior. Gilliam described the woman who bought the gun in general terms. Small, dark black hair. The Nashville police showed him a picture, a small girl with dark hair, and asked him whether this was the woman he'd sold the gun to. I'm going to show you a picture, okay. and I'm, I'm going to see if, if this may have been a young lady uh, that, that uh, purchased that gun from you. Okay, I'm showing you a picture. This is a picture of uh, Shahir Kazimi. Uh, that's a photograph of her. Does that look like the young lady that you sold the gun to? That's exactly the same. This is the lady that sold the gun Investigators are making this really easy on Gilliam. There's no photo lineup, just one picture, and they even feed him her name. Police ask Gilliam for more details, but he wasn't offering much help. Did, did, she, did she ever um, say why she needed the gun? Or did, did the I, didn't even, I never even, okay. never even got it. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't even know her name, man. Okay. You know so saying? she never told, told you any personal no. problems she may have been having or anything like that? Okay. I didn't even know her name. Gilliam is persistent on that point. Jenny was a stranger to him. The interview lasted just seven and a half minutes. Three days later, on July 8th, Nashville police held a press conference and revealed their findings. 
that Jenny Kazemi had killed Steve McNair in a murder-suicide. Based upon the appearance of the crime scene, evidence collected, autopsy findings, laboratory results, the totality of the evidence clearly points to a murder-suicide. They said she'd purchased the murder weapon from a total stranger, Adrian Gilliam. They described the sale as an act of serendipity almost. Ron Surpass, the national chief of police, told reporters, quote, they transacted the deal, and that pretty much is where that ends. At another press conference on July 17th, Surpass said again of Gilliam, quote, he hardly knows who he's dealing with, and yet he's selling a gun. How they came together is probably happenstance. Edward Yarborough, the U.S. attorney in Nashville, described the gun sale as, quote, a casual exchange between two people. But then the Nashville PD got a hold of Jenny's phone records, and they discovered Adrian Gilliam did know Jenny. In fact, the two of them had been in regular contact for weeks and at all hours of the night. Vincent Hill, the former cop-turned-private investigator, obtained a copy of those phone records and shared them with me. They cover only the last three weeks of Jenny's life, but they show that over that period, Jenny and Adrian Gilliam called and texted each other more than 200 times. Think about that for a second. How often do you call and text your significant other? Or your best friend? Or your mother? Jenny and Gilliam were calling and texting each other, on average, about 10 times a day. The phone records also show that Gilliam was one of the last people who spoke to Jenny before she died. Police had already gone public in pinning the murder-suicide on Jenny Kazemi, but on July 24th, they circled back and interviewed Gilliam for a second time. Today's date is uh, July the 24th of 2009. Time by my watch is 11, 17 hours. I am here at the Federal Building located at 9th and uh, Broadway, about to interview Adrian Gilliam. And uh, Mr. Gilliam is represented by his attorney, Hugh Mundy. Um, Mr. Uh, Gilliam, one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you again, after our first initial interview with you, and then since that time we've gotten some phone records. We haven't gotten everything back in terms of phone records, but we've gotten some phone records back, Miss um, Kasimi's uh, phone records. And basically we have some problem with some of the statements you gave about the extent of you and Miss uh, Kazemi's relationship and uh, there were some phone calls up until the morning when this here all occurred that showing that you and her, uh, you've made a phone call to her. Gilliam started over. He had a new story. This time he told the police that he first met Jenny outside a bar maybe three or four weeks before she died. She was driving by. She stopped to chat and they exchanged numbers. He said he saw Jenny three times in person before he sold her the gun, twice at her apartment, and once briefly at a Nashville club. Gilliam explained to the police that he'd been dishonest in his first interview because his fiancée had been sitting right next to him at the time, the implication being that she would not have been happy to hear about his relationship with Jenny. Gilliam denied that he and Jenny were dating, but he suggested that she maybe had that in mind. Well, I mean, we, talk, we used to text frequently all the time. I mean, she was flirting with me and trying to lure me in, but we never really could... You know, we never really couldn't After reviewing Jenny's text messages, police would later conclude that it was Gilliam who was in fact pursuing a romantic relationship with Jenny, not the other way around. In December 2009, Don Aaron, the Nashville PD spokesman, would say at a press conference, quote, the messages that he sent to her clearly indicate he wants to be around her. He was pursuing her. And so Gilliam lied to the police to avoid trouble with his fiancée. But he also had another reason to be nervous about meeting with authorities. Adrian Gilliam was an ex-con, a convicted murderer, and it was illegal for him to even own a gun. 
Just by admitting that he'd sold the 9mm to Jenny, he would be implicating himself in a federal crime. In fact, shortly after he spoke to the police, he was charged as a convicted felon in possession of a firearm. Gilliam's criminal history came to light as his gun possession case played out in the fall of 2009. According to court documents filed by Gilliam's lawyer, Gilliam had a rough childhood. His parents divorced when he was young, and he was shuttled back and forth between them. His father was in the Air Force and moved frequently, which complicated things. According to the documents, when Gilliam visited his father, his stepmother gave him severe beatings. Around the time he turned 14, Gilliam was sent to live with his mother in the Miami area in public housing. Shortly after that, Gilliam apparently fell into a bad crowd. He was arrested three times in the span of about four months for a range of charges. Auto theft, burglary, criminal mischief. A year later, when Gilliam was 15, he was arrested again. Auto theft and burglary. Then, the year after that, Hurricane Andrew ravaged South Florida, and Gilliam and his friends saw an opportunity. They grabbed some guns, hopped in a stolen car, and started driving around, looking for houses to rob. Gilliam was only 16 years old at the time. At their first stop, they held a woman and her 10-year-old granddaughter at gunpoint, and they nabbed almost $20,000 in jewelry and cash. Then they tried another house. There seems to be some discrepancy about what happened next. In 1992, the state said that Gilliam and two of his friends emerged from their car brandishing weapons. Gilliam and his buddy had handguns, and a third man had a shotgun. In 2009, Gilliam's lawyer would contend that Gilliam remained in the car, while his buddies went to rob the house. Either way, a gun battle with the homeowner ensued and one of Gilliam's friends ended up dead. In the chaos, Gilliam fled, but he was later picked up and arrested. He was convicted on second-degree murder and attempted armed robbery, and he received a sentence of 17 years in prison. Back in court in 2009, Gilliam's lawyer described him as having been a productive inmate. He read a lot, earned his GED, and received his certification in air conditioning maintenance. He got paroled in 2002 after nine years. He was in his mid-20s at that point, still a relatively young man. He moved to Nashville and found a job as a car salesman. In 2005, he met a woman. A year later, that woman gave birth to a child. Shortly after that, in early 2007, someone broke into Gilliam's home. He was spooked. And that's when he gave a friend $100 for a used firearm, a Bryco Jennings 9mm, in order to protect his young family. Gilliam apparently owned the weapon for about two and a half years, until Jenny Kazemi came along asking about buying a gun. In both of his police interviews, Gilliam said that Jenny had just one day casually asked him about buying a gun. He said she never mentioned why she needed it, and he apparently didn't ask. But he did explain why he was so anxious to sell the gun. He was strapped for cash. Here's what he told the police in his initial interview. When she first asked you about the sale of the gun, tell me about that conversation again. How that she, All she did is just ask me, do you know anybody got a gun who can, you know, because I told her I could sell, sell the car. I guess she just thought, you know, here I got connected. I don't know, but she mm-hmm. asked me. And it was perfect time for me because she been telling me to get it out of the house and all this shit. So I was like, and I need the money. Okay. So I just said, shit, mm-hmm. I sell it tomorrow. Okay. Because I'm, okay. I'm not working right now. I lost my job and been doing okay. bad. lost my home, lost everything. So okay. I was just trying to make some money. Okay. During Gilliam's gun case, his lawyer noted that the Nashville PD had interviewed other people who confirmed that Gilliam had, quote, fallen on hard times around the time of the gun sale. It's unclear, though, whether things were actually as bad as Gilliam says they were. Vincent Hill points to an interview the police did with Adrian Gilliam's friend, Tony Smith. Smith had worked with Gilliam before. Smith told police he'd hired Gilliam at a car dealership after Gilliam got out of prison. And Smith pointed out that Gilliam had come into a substantial amount of money about two years before the gun sale, when both men were involved in settling a discrimination lawsuit against their employer. What happened was, we worked at Kia. And I was the manager at Kia. And 
the owner was very, very racist. And I yeah. discrimination suit against him. Yeah. And I, I, I put Adrian and Charles Hawkins a whole lot of down the, on the lawsuit. And we won the lawsuit. So mm -hmm. we won the lawsuit. Everybody, some people got 200000 some people got 100000 I think Adrian got about 150000 Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. If Smith is right, Adrian Gilliam pocketed $150,000 and then two years later found himself so desperate that he sold a pistol to a near stranger for 100 bucks. Now this isn't an instant millionaire situation, but $150,000 would be a lot of money to someone in Adrian Gilliam's shoes. And while it's possible that Gilliam squandered that away, it makes you wonder about his claim. This is a guy who, when he communicated with Jenny, still referred to himself as Mr. Ben had stacks, as in Gilliam had stacks of money. As the police pressed Gilliam for details about this gun sale, he continued having trouble pinpointing when exactly it took place. In his first interview, he eventually said Friday, July 3rd. Then, in a follow-up call with the police, he changed that to July 2nd. In his second interview, Gilliam seemed even less certain. Well, what day was this when you sold her, sold her to Weff? The day I sold her to her, I sold her to her at about 6 o'clock. I spoke to her that night, and I guess it, it must have Took, took place that later that, that evening or that night, she must have took care of whatever she done because that's how it's how it turning out. So when you said 6 o'clock that night, are you talking about that Friday night? Which would have been the third? I don't, I don't know what day it day. was, but what, whatever day it was, it was around 5 or 6 o'clock. The police don't push Gillian much further than that. They just go with July 3rd, which fits their timeline. If you've convinced yourself that a gun sale took place and you were to look at Jenny's phone records, then July 3rd would make sense. Gilliam and Jenny called and texted each other more than 50 times that day. So let's indulge Gilliam in his gun sales story for a moment. He said that on July 3rd, he called Jenny around 6 p.m. while he was sitting in his car outside Dave & Buster's. The Nashville police say Jenny's shift was scheduled to start at 6.15 that day, and it's unclear whether she'd started working yet. Gilliam said Jenny came outside and got into the car with him. Then he drove around the lot as they made the transaction the gun in exchange for five $20 bills. The whole thing seemed short and sweet the way he described it, very business-like. It wasn't no real long conversation. It was just, uh, I gave her the gun, she gave him the money, and I drove around and dropped her uh, dropped off. She was in your car with you? Yes, sir. Did you, did she ask you, how do you shoot it? Uh, how do you load it? No, I don't think so. <coughs> I don't think so. Did you ever show her you had to rack up a bullet in the chamber. No, sir, I didn't. Sure, the safety. The safety. I, I mean, I, I unloaded it one time. Just, to, I did like that. I didn't even take it all the way. I just did it like that and just pushed it back in. It, it had a little clip on it. I mean, a, a side piece. I just said, I said, this is the only way the machine it comes out and it goes in. And I just showed her how to, you know, take it out and put it in and gave it to her. Mm-hmm. Another one we didn't know about it. He showed her how to remove the clip. That's it. He didn't show her how to load it. He didn't show her how to turn the safety off. He didn't show her how to shoot her aim. Then, a few hours later, Jenny is said to have brutally murdered Steve McNair with four kill shots from a short distance away. Two shots to the chest and one to each temple. 
Jenny's sister and her friends told me she'd never fired a gun before. How did Jenny become an assassin then in the matter of a few hours? That's a question that I came across again and again from Vincent, from friends, from family members. Investigators asked Gilliam, what happened next? Where did you let her out of the vehicle at? In the parking, directly straight towards uh, Dave and Buster's. What did she do with the gun when she, did she, uh, she took it in the pouch? She had, she had on a black pouch. And uh, she put it in the pouch. Mm. Gilliam said he let her out in front of Dave and Buster's and that she put the gun in her pouch. Presumably, he's referring to the pouch on her work apron. Gilliam says that after he let Jenny out of the car, she took the gun back into Dave and Buster's. Vincent Hill finds that hard to believe. So he says she put it in her apron, all 110 pounds of her, puts it in this tight black apron, and she magically walks back into Dave and Buster's and no one sees the imprint of this large 9mm in her apron. So she's ninja style enough to walk from his car in broad daylight back into Dave and Buster's. Apparently, assumingly, into the locker room through customers, workers, and then put it in her purse. Really? And no one ever sees this little girl with this huge gun in her apron. That just made no sense whatsoever. Sonia knew... Jenny's Dave and Buster's supervisor agrees. She doesn't think that Jenny could have made it very far carrying a gun in a work apron. You know, the, the uh, aprons are half aprons, very, very small, um, large enough to hold a server book. And even that, um, the server book would not be completely concealed. Even the smallest handgun would be noticeable. And then if she has a weapon, where's she keeping it? You know, she didn't have access to a lot of hiding. I mean, sure, she could have hidden it somewhere, but it just doesn't seem logical. Where's she keeping it? Good question. Fall of the Titan is brought to you by The New Yorker. I read The New Yorker every week. It's one of my favorite magazines. It's always full of deeply reported stories that you won't find anywhere else. Last month, I went to see Patrick Radden Keefe at The New Yorker Festival talk about a true crime story that he recently written. The story was about a Dutch gangster who was exposed by his own sister. It's a 12,000-word story about the criminal underbelly of Amsterdam, but it's also a story of family and betrayal. It's a type of story you're only going to read in The New Yorker. In every issue, you also get poetry, fiction, and cultural criticism, covering everything from books to movies. I especially love reading the witty and insightful stories in the Talk of the Town section. New Yorker has also ramped up its website. NewYorker.com now publishes 15 to 20 new stories every day. Which is great, because now I don't have to wait a week to read The New Yorker when big news breaks. You shouldn't wait either. Go to newyorker.com backslash titan. Listeners of this podcast save 50% when they enter the code TITAN. With this special offer, you'll receive 12 issues for just $6, plus get the exclusive New Yorker tote bag. You can choose between print, digital, or combo subscription. Subscribe to The New Yorker and read something that means something. That's 12 issues for $6 and a free tote bag when you go to newyorker.com backslash titan. Where would Jenny have stashed a gun in a Dave & Buster's? For those unfamiliar, Dave & Buster's is a cross between a sports bar and a Chuck E. Cheese. Big screen TVs and arcade games everywhere. And this particular Dave & Buster's is located in the Opry Mills Mall, adjacent to the Grand Ole Opry House and the Gaylord Opryland Resort and Convention Center. Which is to say, this Dave & Buster's is a tourist trap. It's crowded. When Vincent was taping one of his true crime shows, he actually went to a Dave & Buster's and tried testing what this would look like. Someone stuffing a gun into one of their aprons. 
Yeah, I mean, we actually went to Dave and Buster's in Nashville, and we were like, "Hey, we need to borrow your apron. This is going to sound weird, but this is what we want to do." You know, we put my nine millimeter inside the apron, and you could just see the bulge, right? And if you turn it a certain way, it sticks out. So that whole story just never made sense. I asked the police, what did Jenny do with the gun after buying it from Gilliam? I was curious if they had a more reasonable explanation than the one Gilliam offered. But it sounded as though they didn't really know. They told me, quote, we cannot say what Kazemi did with the gun after receiving it from Gilliam. Vincent Hill asks, if this gun sale actually took place, wouldn't there have been surveillance video of Jenny meeting Gilliam in the parking lot? Even just to shut me up, this old crazy Nashville cop, ex-Nashville cop, even to shut me up, you know what they would have done? They would have shown that video to say, here's Adrian Gillian pulling him up in Opry Mills. Here's Sahel Kazemi seen walking out of David Busters to his car. Here's Gilliam driving around like he said. Here she is exiting the car and walking back into David Busters. But guess what they haven't done? They haven't shown that. You know why? Because it doesn't exist. That's the whole premise of the case. The easiest way to shut people up is just show that. It doesn't exist. There's no way it exists. I reached out to Les Morris, a spokesman for the Opry Mills Mall Complex, and he told me that any surveillance tapes the mall had were turned over to the police. I inquired about any archival footage they might have kept, and he said anything like that would have been destroyed in a flood in 2010. So I asked the Nashville police if they had any surveillance footage from Dave and Buster's. They checked their archive. Nothing. Nor is any such tape mentioned in the police report. Now, I want to point out, Adrian Gilliam is the only person saying this gun sale even took place. There are no other witnesses in the police report. No one corroborated Gilliam's story. There's apparently no video evidence either. Just Gilliam's version of events and some cell site information that placed Adrian Gilliam in the area of the mall near the time when he says the gun sale occurred. The way Vincent Hill sees it, the cell phone records play against Gilliam's story too. According to Jenny's phone records, Jenny and Gilliam called each other eight times between 5.44 p.m. and 6.27 p.m. on July 3rd around the same time that this alleged gun sale took place. Vincent wonders, why would Jenny and Gilliam need to call each other that frequently if they were in the same place at the same time? During that same time period, while Jenny was calling Gilliam, she also had four phone calls back and forth with Steve McNair. That makes Vincent's head spin. So I'd really love to have heard that conversation she's having with Steve. Hey, Steve, what you doing? Oh, hey, honey, listen, so yeah, I'm about to buy a 9 millimeter to blow your brains out. Uh... At around 1.30 this morning. Oh, okay. All right, I'll talk to you later. Okay, babe. Bye. I love you, right? I poured over Jenny's phone records for hours, and I found a pattern. On nine separate days in a three-week span, Jenny called Adrian Gilliam shortly after having called Steve McNair. There were several instances when she called Gilliam within minutes of having contacted McNair. And a few of these calls were made in the middle of the night, some as late as 2 in the morning. Phone records show that Jenny was in constant communication with at least four men over the last three weeks of her life, and there were days when she was in contact with several of them at the same time, ping-ponging back and forth between them. There was Steve McNair and Adrian Gilliam, of course. Then there was Quentin Ganther, who briefly played with the Titans. Ganther denied ever being in a relationship with Jenny, but the two of them did text each other more than 250 times in those last three weeks. And then there was Keith Norfleet, Jenny's ex-boyfriend. He and Jenny called and texted 262 times in late June and early July of 2009. There was a period when Keith knew Jenny better than anyone. They started dating back when Jenny lived in Florida. Jenny actually moved in with Keith and his family for some time when she started having some issues at home. 
And then she dropped out of school and they moved to Nashville together to live with Keith's cousin for a while before eventually getting a place of their own. Jenny and Keith broke up sometime around late 2008, but they were still living together as Jenny started seeing Steve McNair. If that sounds odd, consider the dynamics of Jenny and Keith's relationship. Emily Andrews, Jenny's former roommate, told the police that Jenny had cheated on Norfleet, quote, a bunch of times. Chrissy Rudolph, another one of Jenny's friends, told me that Norfleet cheated on Jenny, too. It was like a back-and-forth thing. In fact, Chrissy Rudolph told me that Jenny viewed her dating Steve McNair as some twisted way of getting back at Norfleet. Jenny was apparently talking to McNair behind Norfleet's back. She kind of got a kick out of the fact that her ex-boyfriend was a Steve McNair fan, and he had no idea that she was dating him. She kind of got a kick out of that. She laughed about it. She thought it was funny. She pulled out a card that her ex had, like a football card, a Steve McNair football card. She was like, look, he's so obsessed with Steve McNair, he has no idea I'm dating him. She laughed about it. Jenny finally moved out of Norfleet's apartment in February 2009. She and Norfleet stopped talking for a while after that. Norfleet told the police that he had no idea that Jenny had been seeing McNair until a friend told him, sometime after Jenny had moved out. Then Norfleet told the police one day he and Jenny started talking again, seemingly out of the blue. Norfleet didn't respond to numerous attempts to contact him for this podcast, but we can parse through what he's told the police. Here he is back in July 2009. She started getting really stressed out about stuff, and eventually she started texting me and calling me and stuff, and we started talking, and then, you know, she basically told me that, you know, she wanted to, you know, she wanted to start hanging out again. Jenny was stressed because Christy Rudolph had stuck her with her old Kia, and then Emily Andrews had moved out of their apartment. Jenny was stuck making two car payments and covering all of her rent. And as all this was happening, she apparently turned to her ex-boyfriend for support. I was trying to, you know, find any and every way that I could possibly help her because I know she was stressed out. I, I know Jenny, and she's she's never been stressed out like that before. Mm-hmm. She was stressed out, but at the same time. It felt like there was something else. Mm-hmm. And I always asked her, I always asked her, you know, is there anything else that you mm-hmm. want to talk about? Jenny confided in Norfleet that things were going poorly with McNair. She told Norfleet she wanted to go to Steve's wife and expose the affair. But Norfleet told her that wasn't a good idea. Eventually, Jenny told Keith she was done seeing Steve, that they'd broken up. Emily Andrews told the police that Norfleet had been wanting to get back together with Jenny for some time. And he still... He called her, and I read the text messages. He would send her, like, essays of how, why they should get back together and how much she missed her and what she meant to him. And her kind of opinion on it was, you know, he, he, helped, he helped me grow up, but she said she kind of outgrew him. And it wasn't, she didn't feel passionate for him or it wasn't the love that she felt that she could have with someone else. Now Jenny was telling Norfleet that she and McNair were through. You would think that Norfleet might have seen this as perhaps his chance to win Jenny back. He told police that he and Jenny were getting to the point where they were regularly hanging out together again. Norfleet was brainstorming ideas to help Jenny with her car payments. He even suggested they move back in together to save on rent. But Jenny seemed confused about what she wanted to do. Then everything came to a head when Jenny was arrested for a DUI in the early hours of July 2nd. Jenny called Keith that night asking for him to come pick up her Cadillac Escalade. Keith and a buddy drove down to retrieve the car where they were met by a police officer. I'll let Norfleet take the rest from here. We go to the parking lot and I was like, all right, so uh, 
do you know if she left the keys in the glove compartment? Because I have no way, I don't have the keys or anything like that. And he was like, no, it's illegal to leave the keys in the car. And I was like, well, is there a way I, maybe I can go to where you took her to pick the keys up? And he was like, no, they're not going to let you get them. Mm -hmm. And that's when he asked me, he was like, well, dude, are, are you her boyfriend or something? And I was like, no, I'm her ex-boyfriend. And he was like, well, I was just asking because she said her boyfriend was in the car. And I was like, oh, well, do you know who it is? And he was like, well, do you know anything about NFL football? And I was like, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Later that morning, Dorfleet emailed a reporter at the Tennessean, the local paper, saying that Steve McNair had been involved in a DUI case downtown and that he had been with, quote, a 20-year-old girl claiming to be his girlfriend. I thought he was married. Hmm, Keith wrote. Keith later told police that he sent that email because he wanted McNair to be held accountable, but it's easy to read that as he wanted to push Steve and Jenny apart. The next day, on the afternoon of Friday, July 3rd, Keith asked Jenny what was going on between her and McNair. She, she led me to believe this is exact, her exact words. She was like, no, we was just hanging out downtown at the bar and we had a few drinks. And I was like, okay. Norfleet made it seem like he and Jenny had made up. Norfleet told police that later that night, he texted Jenny, suggesting that they take a vacation together to take her mind off everything. Then, if she wanted to, he said, she could move in with him when they got back. Norfleet told the police that Jenny responded, quote, that's a good idea, sounds good. But that would never happen. Jenny and Steve turned up dead the next day. In the aftermath, Jenny's nephew told the police that Keith Norfleet, Jenny's ex-boyfriend, should be considered a person of interest. The media searched Norfleet's MySpace page for clues. Norfleet was an aspiring rapper, and he had posted a song on his page that February around the time that Jenny had moved out of his apartment because she was seeing Steve McNair. The song was titled Closed Casket, and he included lyrics that appeared to reference the retired QB. It's hard to imagine this song not being about Steve McNair. At one point, Norfleet calls out what he describes as, quote, Benjamin Tebow, an 83-year-old fake Pacino, which would seem to be referring to an old football player. Steve was 35 when he'd started seeing Jenny, which would probably seem old in the eyes of a 23-year-old kid competing for the same woman. In that song, Norfleet goes on to say, Put so many holes in your nerves, won't even jerk. Lurking in the shadows, thinking and scheming of work. Got a little cocky, so you decided to flirt. Now you're flirting with death. Sounds like someone's flirting with his girlfriend, and he's mad, right? The final verse gets even more intense. If you ever do it again, bitch, I'm not rapping. I'm getting a clip and clapping, and I'm not laughing. They're wrapping you up for a little trip to the morgue while I'm preparing for my trip to the shore. Don't ignore me. I'm not lying. I couldn't be more honest. If you ever do it again, you'll die. I promise. The Nashville PD asked Norfleet about this song. What about this song that you supposedly wrote? Yeah, I, I write music. Okay. I write music, and I'm, I'm just being honest. I write music because it. I, that's, that's how I've been. I, I mean, she knew that. Everybody knows that. Yeah. Everybody close to me. Tell us about the one you wrote in reference to McNair. In reference to McNair. Did you write one yeah. in reference to McNair? That's that's this is stuff from you, uh, the people, uh, you know, information you gathered that there was a. I never wrote a song about McNair. You didn't. What no. about what about doing harm to Jenny or anyone? Oh well, I mean, you know, it's rap music. Uh -huh. So I mean, there's 
their songs on there from like back in the day, you know, it's just like regular rap or whatever, but like anything that has anything to do with Jenny or anything like that, like mm -hmm. it was just me basically, you know how somebody would write, mm -hmm. they'll write in a journal or anything like that, you know, that's that's how I would, I would do it, you know, I would write music, I mean, she knew that. Norfleet said he wrote music to Vent. He denied he ever wrote a song about McNair, and that was that. The police didn't call him on the fact that the song was hardly from back in the day. He posted it apparently around the time that Jenny moved out and stopped talking to him. The police didn't really push Norfleet about this song, though. They did ask Norfleet, where were you the night that Jenny died? He said he'd been working at White Castle all night. Sometime around 2.30 a.m., he left the restaurant on his work break to go pick up a friend. Then he returned to White Castle to finish out his shift. He clocked out at 3.09 a.m., at which point he and his friend went back to his place and watched music videos until they fell asleep. The police checked Norfleet's time card. They also spoke with Norfleet's friend and his White Castle co-worker who was working that night. Apparently, Norfleet's alibi checked out. The police moved on. Fall of the Titan is brought to you by Harry's. I recently switched over to Harry's razors, and I can't imagine shaving with anything else now. Harry's gives me a smooth, close shave, so I don't look like a complete slob when I show up to do a podcast interview. The secret is in the blades. Harry's blades are made with sharp, durable steel, and they're inexpensive too. Harry sells their blades directly to you over the internet, so their prices are much lower compared to the competitors. I pay $2 per blade with Harry's, where others charge as much as $4 or more. And the best part is, there's a quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let Harry's know within 30 days, and they'll give you a full refund. Listeners of this show can get a $13 value trial set that comes with everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. That includes a five-blade razor, shave gel, and a travel blade cover. You can redeem your trial set at harrys.com backslash titan. That's harrys.com backslash titan. The police also needed to account for Adrian Gilliam's whereabouts on the night of July 3rd into the early hours of July 4th. And that one's a bit trickier. Remember, Gilliam was one of the last people to talk to Jenny alive. He called Jenny at 12.02 a.m. on July 4th, and they spoke for three minutes. And for all the other times when Gilliam's memory would fail him during his police interviews, he seemed to remember exactly where he was and what he was doing when he made that call. Uh, you went downtown anywhere? I was in Antioch, Tennessee. I was at a BP gas station, and uh, I pulled up. I'm going to tell you what, how I knew I was at, because I had just left my friend's house, mm -hmm. who I told you house I was at. Mm -hmm. And uh, he asked me, he said, man, could you go get me a Coke, a Coke? Because uh, he, he likes to drink Crown Royal. Mm -hmm. He said, man, could you, could you go and get me a, a, a Coke soda to put with my Crown Royal? I said, yeah, man. So I ran up to the BP gas station, and the gas station was closed. And so I drove to Burger King, and I just got, I bought, a, uh, bought, a, I bought him a Coke. Gilliam said he was in Antioch, Tennessee when he made that call. Antioch is about 25 minutes away from Steve McNair's condo in downtown Nashville. Gilliam said he was running an errand for his friend, Tony Smith, when he called Jenny. Yeah, once Miss Smith, I called her, uh, called her, I said, what, what you doing? I asked her, she'll come down in here. Did she, what'd she say? She said, no, nah, okay, I'm in, uh, I'm downtown, 7 Did she ask you to come down there? Uh, I think she did, but I was like, man, shit, I ain't, I ain't gonna wait out, you know, too far. Okay. About how long did you and her talk? Probably two or three minutes, like that. They decided not to meet up, apparently. So Gilliam said he returned to Tony Smith's house for a couple of hours. At 1.17 a.m., Gilliam texted Jenny, You good? That was right around the time McNair arrived back at his condo. 
police questioned Gilliam about that text. But then roughly a little over an hour later, you send her a text that says, you good. Yeah. Was there something in that prior conversation at 12.02 that made you believe that something was going on? No. Nah. You good? It's like, man, like, what's up? It's like saying, what's up? Man? You know, you know, that's what that means. All that is. Gilliam said he stayed at Tony Smith's house until around 2 a.m. Remember, police estimate that Steve and Jenny died sometime around 2 a.m. that night. But later that day, Gilliam continued texting Jenny. According to the police file, he sent her two texts that morning. One at 7.21 a.m. and then another at 7.26 a.m. Both of them read, what up? Then, at 4.10 p.m., two hours after the police found Jenny dead, Gilliam sent a blank text to her phone. At 9.24 p.m., about nine hours after the bodies had been found, Gilliam texted Jenny again, asking, quote, We going to get together tonight? He used the numeral two in the words together and tonight. You could take those texts at face value. Gilliam didn't know Jenny was dead, and so he kept texting her. But Vincent Hill doesn't do that, of course. My personal opinion, and if Nashville p- police were smart, they would see he was just sending his alibi, right? Because by 2.30, 3 o'clock, that day, Saturday, July 4, 2009, the entire world knew Steve McNear was dead. And by 6 o'clock, they knew it was Jenny that was with Steve, right? So it was clear that Gilliam was setting his alibi because he, in his mind, he's thinking, well, police are going to ask what I had to do with this murder. So if I text her, I would say, well, why would I text her if I knew she was dead? You know what I mean? It was clear what he was doing. What Vincent is accusing Gilliam of doing is pretty heavy. And it's that kind of thinking that can leave you scratching your head about Vincent, about the veracity of his questioning. He's basically implying that Gilliam was trying to throw the Nashville PD off his scent because he was somehow involved in the murder of Steve McNair. This is where things get dicey when you start listening to all the questions and theories that Vincent Hill has about the Steve McNair case. Vincent starts with a simple premise. He doesn't believe that Jenny Kazemi murdered Steve McNair. But then following further, and he leads you to a darker place. If Jenny didn't kill him, who did? If Vincent finds one detail that looks a little off, if he hears one nugget that contradicts the police narrative, he'll run with it. All he needs is one crumb, and he can work backwards and come up with a theory about what happened that night in Steve McNair's condo, about who was involved. Suddenly, you have a conspiracy. I wanted to check, though. Was it possible that Gilliam had no idea Jenny was dead? Remember, Vincent said everyone knew that Jenny was dead by sometime around 6 p.m. on July 4th. I tracked down tapes of the 6 o'clock and 10 o'clock news from the NBC affiliate in Nashville. Former Tennessee Titan quarterback Steve McNair was found shot to death. When police officers arrived in response to that call, they found two individuals raised questions about McNair's relationship with her. She is 20-year-old Sahel Kazimi. And I found that the police didn't actually release Jenny's name until sometime around 9.40 p.m. It's certainly possible then that Gilliam didn't know that Jenny was dead when he continued texting her that day. Vincent's theory seems to be based on some erroneous, pretty basic information. Put Vincent's theory aside now. Gilliam had laid out his alibi that he was at Tony Smith's house in the early hours of July 4th. Investigators still had to check that out. Here's Gilliam with the police again. And if we talk to Tony Smith, he can verify that he was at his house on Friday night, which would be a Friday night, um, Saturday morning, which would have been July the 3rd. As long as his memory remembers correctly, absolutely, 100%. As long as his memory remembers correctly. What a weird way to answer that question. Well, shortly after that, police checked in with Tony Smith. Okay, I don't know the date. 
dates where, where there was a date where Steve was shot or not. I, I can't remember dates, but I know I got a call from Adam saying that he had something very important to talk to him about. And uh, he, he hit me up about two or three times, and I know in his voice that it was, had to be something a little serious. And he kept saying he had something to talk to me about. And uh, you know what I'm saying? So Adam right in my house, I guess, nine. 8.30, somewhere, and he, when he was talking to me, he said that uh, he sold a gun to some girl that killed Steve Manette that I see it on the TV. I, I had, I, did I see it on TV? I don't know what I told him. I don't know if I told him I did not did, because I don't remember exactly what I told him, but I asked him that you need to contact the police. Have you told the police? He said somebody from y'all office had talked to him. It was, it was he said somebody at y'all office had talked to him. He told me, because I asked him, did you report it to the police? He said somebody at the office had already talked to me about. See, I, I'm, not, I'm not good with dates and, and, and names. I'm asking with faces. I can't really remember what day he came back. I do remember that when he came back, he was upset. He was patting. Because I told him, man, I got some liquor now. You need to sit down. You need to. Okay. Let, when I asked him had he told the police, he told me he had. Okay. You know, he told me he had already told the police. Okay. That's weird. Remember, Gilliam told police he was at Tony Smith's house in the early hours of July 4th, before Steve McNair was killed, before the police got involved. But as Tony Smith spoke to the police, he remembered things quite differently. Do you remember if he, he came to your house that day? The, the, the day he came to see me. And this was before Steve was killed. Yeah. The day he came to see me. No, he didn't come see me. He didn't, he didn't come. Because he, he, in his statement he gave us Friday, he said that that night, around uh, uh, midnight, or before midnight, he, he was at your house and then he, you, you sent him to the store to get some coke. That was the day that I'm telling you about. Now, I don't think that was, I don't think that was the night, though. Okay. I don't think. Okay, he, I don't think this, this had to be. This was before Steve was killed. No. Nah. He said that uh, he was nah. at your house. No. Nah. Uh, he stayed at your house nah. at around 2 a.m. in the morning. Been, no, uh, sir. I, I can't tell you no lie. When I talked to him, Steve was dead. So you don't remember him a day or two before that being at your house, staying at like 2 uh, about 2, 2 30 in the morning? He said, uh, here's what he said. He said, he went, you asked him to go get you. Oh, because you like to drink crime. Yeah. He did, man. That's the night, man. That night that I'm telling you about. That happened that night. What kind of drink did he bring you back? A, a coat. He brought a coat. Was it in a bottle, a can, or what? Probably from a bottle. And so this, this, this was after Steve and Steve was dead, man. Okay, so I know for a fact Steve was dead. So I know for a fact Steve was dead because I asked him. How I know for a fact I asked, I asked him. Uh, did you report it? What made me really remember? Because I asked him, did he report it to the police? That's what's standing up in my mind. That's how I know Steve was already dead. Because I said, man, just like I'm talking to you, I said, man, did you report it to the police? According to Tony Smith, Gilliam came over his house after Steve and Jenny had been found dead. After Gilliam had spoken to the Nashville police. Smith also said that the previous time he'd seen Gilliam before that was maybe a week earlier. It sure would have been hard then for Gilliam to mix up his days. But, but this year, you know, because he, he knew specifically what we were talking about. I, I wanted to know where he was the night when Steve McNeil was killed. Because there's been some question about whether or not he was with Miss Cazini. 
that night. The girl that killed Steve McNeil. And, uh, and, and so I said, I need to know where you were at the, world the night, the Friday night, Saturday morning. And his, his alibi was that he was at your house uh, and you actually you sent him to the store to get uh, coke. And uh, then he, after that, he, he said, he, he, when he got to the... He now, Adrian's a good friend of mine, but yeah. I ain't finna lie for nobody, okay? Okay. Now, I'm gonna tell you, that didn't happen. How I know that didn't happen, bro, because uh, the reason he came to my house mm -hmm. was to tell me about Steve. So how does that happen? Okay, so you got to Okay. I ain't gonna lie for nobody. Tony Smith told the police flat out what Adrian Gilliam said was incorrect. He was not at my house in Antioch in the early hours of July 4th. It appears now that Gilliam lied to the police twice. He lied to them about not knowing Jenny. Then, if you believe Tony Smith, he lied to them about his alibi. I tried reaching out to Adrian Gilliam, but he didn't return my messages, which left us just to review what he said in his police interviews. Look at all the things Gilliam told the police. Hold them all up together. He claimed he didn't know Jenny, and that was hardly the case. He said he sold Jenny a gun because he was strapped for cash, when one friend said Gilliam had recently come into $150,000. He said he didn't teach Jenny how to shoot the gun, but then how did Jenny become an expert marksman overnight? He said she put the gun in her work apron, which is just, well, that seems hard to imagine. There's apparently no surveillance footage of this gun sale, no hard evidence. Just the word of Adrian Gilliam, a convicted murderer. Now, after hearing everything Gilliam had to say, you can start to see why Vincent Hill wonders if this gun sale even happened at all. There's one question about Adrian Gilliam that has stuck with Vincent all this time. If Gilliam wasn't at Tony Smith's house the night Steve McNair was murdered, where was he? At one press conference, Nashville police shared that at the time of the shooting, Gilliam's phone had pinged off a tower near Smyrna another Nashville suburb, which even further confuses things, because Smyrna is even farther away from downtown than Antioch, where Gilliam claimed to be that night. It's about 30 minutes from McNair's condo. Vincent Hill has a theory about that too. Vincent has a lot of theories if you haven't noticed. He doesn't think the cell phone info rules out foul play by Adrian Gilliam. He says Gilliam could have easily ditched his phone in Smyrna to trick those cell phone towers. Nashville police say his phone was pinging in Laverne when he made that call. Great, <laughs> but that doesn't mean he, he couldn't have drove the 15 minutes to the condo after that. They're assuming that's the only phone he had, but it was a throwaway cricket phone. He probably had two or three of those dang things. Everyone knows your phone's a walking GPS. You just leave it. It's going to ping on a tower. You leave it. If you're going to do something dirty, you leave it. Maybe this is another one of Vincent's crackpot theories, or maybe not. We'll ask the Nashville police about it in a later episode. But say Adrian Gilliam wasn't at Steve McNair's condo that night. Why then would he lie about his whereabouts? And why does so little about his story about the gun sale make sense? If it didn't happen the way Gilliam said it did, then we still don't know for sure. How did the murder weapon end up at Steve McNair's condo? Well, here's something to consider. Jenny was hardly the only person who had access to the condo. Next week, on Fall of a Titan, we'll introduce you to the two men who found Steve and Jenny's bodies. The two people who, we know for sure, were inside that condo on July 4th, 2009. Still to come on Fall of a Titan. Steve was upset at Gaddy for stealing $13,000. And when Steve got to Nashville, his words, not mine, he was going to shoot that big motherfucker in the knees to bring him to size to kick his ass. Gaddy was asked a direct question on the night of the funeral. 
backstage brother tell me, asked, did you kill my brother? And the response was, no, but I have an idea who might be involved. Hi, this is Tim Rowan, host of Fall of the Titan. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our hub page at si.com backslash McNair, where you can get documents, videos, and more material associated with the case.